From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Ian Roth. Structural heart disease is a problem with the tissues or valves of the heart. These problems can range from defects that are present at birth to diseases that develop over time. On today's program, we'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. Now you got to think that 25% of the world's population has a PFO, and people walking around don't know. You can't hear it on exam. doesn't cause any problem normally. So the vast majority of people, it's just there. It doesn't require anything besides reassurance if it's found and hasn't caused a problem. But it is a potential source for problems. Also on the program, we'll learn about a minimally invasive procedure called hip arthroscopy. And how to keep yourself safe from infection during manicures and pedicures. There are several valves in your heart that control the flow of blood from one part of the heart to another. And the mitral valve is located between the two chambers on the left side of your heart, called the left atrium and the left ventricle. There are several abnormalities that can affect the mitral valve, including mitral valve regurgitation, that is, the valve leaks, and mitral valve stenosis, the valve is too narrow and restricts the flow of blood between the atrium and the ventricle. Mitral valve repair and mitral valve replacement are procedures that may be performed to treat diseases of the mitral valve. What treatment is best for you depends on the abnormality and how severe it is. Here to talk about mitral valve repair is Mayo Clinic interventional cardiologist, Dr. Peter Pollack. Dr. Pollack is the Director of Structural Heart Disease at Mayo Clinic in Florida. Welcome to the program, Dr. Pollack. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Good to have you in studio. So tell us about the heart valves. How many are there and what do they actually do? How do they function inside the heart? Well, as a reminder, the heart is divided top and bottom, left and right, to give us four chambers. So the top chambers are thin-walled receiving chambers. They're the atria. They collect blood and deliver it to the more muscular pumping chambers, the ventricles at the base of the heart. And with four chambers, we have four valves, and they're all designed to be perfect one-way valves. They allow blood to go forward without resistance. And then when the ventricles contract, they stop blood from flowing the opposite direction. So they shouldn't leak, and they shouldn't provide any resistance going forward. So disease is when either of those things happen. As you just mentioned, if they start to leak, we call that regurgitation. If they start to narrow, we call that stenosis. And it can be either the right-sided valves, which are the tricuspid and pulmonic valve, or the left-sided valves, which are cause more symptoms because the left side of the heart receives blood from the lungs and pumps it out to the body. And so we get most of the valve treatments related to the aortic and mitral valve, the valves on the left side of the heart. Uh, and why do they become diseased? Well, uh, it depends on the valve and the nature of the condition. There are a number of different things that can cause valve disease. Far and away, valve disease is a disease of aging. It's one of the things that you don't do to yourself, but just happens if you live long enough. Like uh, everything else, they wear out. <laughs> indeed, indeed. About 10 to 15% of people over age 70 or 75 will have moderate to severe or severe valvular heart disease. So how, how would you know what are the signs and, and symptoms that you have heart uh, disease of the valve? So predominantly, it's going to be an exertional limitation. So you'll feel short of breath because the pressure of the left ventricle trying to pump blood out to the body, in the case of mitral regurgitation, that pressurized blood is now leaking back to the left atrium where blood was collecting from the lungs. So that pressurized blood raises the pressure in the left atrium, raises the pressure in the lungs, and we feel elevated pressure in the lungs as shortness of breath. So uh, shortness of breath is one of the cardinal symptoms of all valvular heart disease. 
Also fatigue, although fatigue is a difficult symptom, as you know, because so many different things can feed into a sense of fatigue. Sure. And so how do you nail down the diagnosis? Uh, in today's day and age, it's going to be the history and physical exam first and foremost. And then echocardiography is the way that we look at the valves. And with echocardiography, we use ultrasound technology. From the outside of the heart, we can, outside of the chest, we can look at the heart, see the valves moving in real time, and we can use color Doppler to see if there's leaking. We can measure the speed of blood through the valves. Just like when you put your thumb over the end of a garden hose, as a valve narrows, the speed of blood going through the valve increases. And so we can measure the speed of blood using the Doppler principle. And faster blood means a narrower valve, whether it's the aortic or mitral valve that started to narrow. You know, most internists still carry a stethoscope. Can you actually hear what, that there, there's an abnormality with one of the valves using the stethoscope? Absolutely. And that's the first way that we're going to uh, recognize valvular heart disease is through the presentation of a murmur. And a murmur, just like we, we talk about a purr, when a cat purrs, that's a pleasant sound of something good. A murr is an unpleasant sound historically. <laughs> and so while I like listening to murmurs because I'm a valvular heart disease doctor, um, a murmur is a, is a sound of blood rushing through a heart valve, and it signifies some degree of valvular heart disease. The typical uh, flow of, of care will be that you complain of a symptom, your doctor may be concerned about valvular heart disease, they listen to your chest with a stethoscope, they hear a murmur, and then to better characterize what's going on beyond what they can tell just from hearing is to look with echocardiography. I mean, if you figure out that there is a valve problem, are you is it always going to require treatment, or are there things that we can do kind of settle things down without having to actually take interventional action? Absolutely. Many valve leaks or mild narrowings are now found incidentally. So someone may hear a murmur, they may, or, or they may get an echo for another reason, and then we see mild mitral regurgitation. As a rule, mild valvular pathologies do not require treatment. We define valve disease as severe when the benefit of treatment really outweighs the risks of the treatment. And so it can be difficult to decide, well, you have some valvular heart disease and you have some shortness of breath, but is it really due to that valve disease? So for patients who may have been told or they read on their ECHO report, oh, mild aortic regurgitation or mild mitral regurgitation, mild tricuspid regurgitation, these are, are valve conditions that generally are, are monitored. We provide reassurance. They don't necessarily require treatment. So. And if the symptoms are bad enough, then mm -hmm. what, what can be done? The cardinal indication for, for example, treatment of the mitral valve, as well as treatment of the aortic valve, these are going to be when the symptoms are related to severe valvular pathology. So we see severe valvular pathology and symptoms that are due to that valvular pathology, then we want to treat the valve. With the mitral valve, if we take mitral regurgitation, for example, it also depends on why the mitral valve is leaking. We broadly categorize mitral valve leaking into two reasons. Because the mitral valve is attached to the left ventricle, it can leak either because the valve itself is broken. We call this flail or, or a prolapsing valve where the valve has started to stretch and the leaflets no longer come together normally. We call that primary mitral regurgitation because it's primarily a problem of the valve itself. That is generally best treated by mitral repair. So that's a surgical procedure. It can now be done by surgical experts using robotic repairs that shorten the length of stay and allow you to recover more quickly. Robotic repair? 
Indeed. So they use either the Da Vinci robot or thoracoscopic techniques to avoid the uh, sternotomy so they don't have to open the chest completely. And that allows you to kind of recover from the procedure uh, much more quickly, so a much shorter length of stay. So you put something actually inside the heart, through the skin, through the ribs, Mm -hmm. and can repair the valve that way? Yes. Okay, but can you also repair it through a catheter, percutaneous? Yes, and so we have uh, technologies to repair mitral valves using a technology called the mitral clip system that goes through the vein of the right leg up to the chambers of the right side of the heart. We poke across into the left atrium, and it's kind of like a an oversized binder clip. It clips the anterior and posterior leaflets of the, the mitral valve back. together. The front, front and back. back. So we by kind of stapling the two leaflets together, where they're leaking, we eliminate or reduce the amount of leak from the mitral valve and patients feel better without having to go through any open chest procedure. That's really for patients who are not going to do well with a surgical procedure. So for younger patients who can recover well from a surgical repair, that's still the gold standard for durability and and recovery. For older patients that are frail or would not recover well from heart surgery, we have this catheter-based option that allows them to feel better right away, go back and recover at home. And our typical course for a patient is they come in, they have the procedure. Procedure takes a couple of hours. They go home the next day. If uh, If the valve is bad enough and you have to replace it, does that require an open surgical procedure? There are minimally invasive approaches to uh, replacing the valve as well, but not robotic per se. All right. So it uh, basically happens in older individuals and the treatment options, uh, you've got a lot of them. Some of them you can do with a robot. Some of them you can do through a catheter. And occasionally it requires opening the chest and actually replacing the valve. That's true. I would want to mention there are some uh, younger patients who do develop uh, valvular heart disease. And there are folks who are born with an abnormal heart valve. If they develop infection on a heart valve, um, this can cause um, injury to the heart valve and require replacement when they're younger. And then some patients have a, a what we call a fibroelastic deficiency or they have a connective tissue difference. And this promotes degeneration of their valves earlier in life, particularly of the mitral valve. And so this is more commonly in patients in their 50s or 60s rather than their 70s or 80s where more patients will develop mitral valve uh, disease. Fortunately, relatively rare in younger people. Yes, much much less common than, than age-related or, or senile valvular degeneration. We are talking with Mayo Clinic interventional cardiologist, Dr. Peter Pollock, Director of Structural Heart Disease at the Mayo Clinic in Florida. A patent foramen ovale, or PFO, is a hole in the heart that didn't close the way it should after birth. PFO occurs in about 25% of the normal population. The hole never completely closes. But most people with the condition don't even know they have it. So, Dr. Pollack, we are all born with a hole in our heart? Yes, we are. It is The PFO uh, is really more of a flap than a hole. And we all have this before we're born. And let me explain why we have this. Before we're born, we can't breathe. We're in a fluid-filled bag, the amniotic sac. So our lungs aren't doing the same kind of work they're doing once we're born. We get all of our oxygenated blood from mom through the placenta. So it's coming down the umbilical cord, coming into our what's now our belly button, so coming up from underneath the heart. And the heart, as it's developed, is designed to take that flow of oxygenated blood from underneath the heart and deflect it at the thin wall that separates the two top chambers. 
So the right atrium receives what's normally venous blood, but in this case is richly oxygenated blood from underneath the heart. And there's a little ridge of tissue called the eustachian ridge, and it deflects that oxygen-rich blood from mom through the wall between the two chop chambers, which grow from either side and kind of overlap. And so there's a flap between them and this constant flow of blood holding that flap open over to the left side, which is supposed to be the oxygen-rich side and where it can get pumped out to the body. Now, when we're born, we cry. And if we don't cry, they kind of stimulate the kid to make them cry because they got to fill their lungs with air and expand their lungs for the first time. And we cut the umbilical cord. And when we cut the umbilical cord, all of a sudden there's a lot less flow of blood coming to the right side of the heart because that flow is no longer there. And now we've expanded the lungs. A lot of blood flow goes to the lungs. So the pressure, with all that blood now going to the lungs, the pressure on the right side of the heart drops in comparison to the left, and that flap then seals. But it seals in most people. Now you got to think that 25% of the world's population, about 2 billion people, and statistically that means someone in this room... <laughs> has a PFO. And that is a lot of people. That means 25% of people with any condition are likely to have a PFO. And most people walking around don't know. You can't hear it on exam. doesn't cause any problem normally. So the vast majority of people, it's just there. It doesn't require anything besides reassurance if it's found and hasn't caused a problem. But it is a potential source for problems if something goes through that potential connection. So if that flap opens, if if the pressure on the right side of the heart is ever higher than the left side, for example, if you cough, gag, retch, bear down, that can push temporarily the pressure on the right side of the heart to be higher and then bump that flap open so that if something such as venous blood or if there are little bits of clot in that venous blood, they could transit through the PFO and get over to the arterial side, the left side, where they can go to anywhere in the body. And cause a stroke, for example. Yes. Yeah, so we, we call that paradoxical embolism. If a, a small bit of clot moves from the right side through the PFO to the left side, if it goes to the brain, we call it a stroke. It plugs up a blood vessel and, and causes injury to, to brain tissue. It could go to anywhere in the body, though. Um, it just, these tend to be smaller size clots and and so the most noticeable place for a smaller size clot to go would be the brain and how do you figure out that it was a problem that that the pfo was the source of the disease that is the real challenge and so our approach here at mayo clinic is very collaborative and what we advocate for is that you work with a neurologist so we have these heart brain clinics where Folks like me, a cardiologist, work hand-in-hand with a, a stroke neurologist or vascular neurologist to really evaluate patients and figure out, was the PFO an incidental finding, an innocent bystander, or was it a potential culprit? Was this really likely to be a stroke that was caused by paradoxical embolism? Does doing device closure of the PFO is that going to decrease the risk of a recurrent stroke? We can't do anything about the stroke that happened, but can we reduce the likelihood that this patient with a PFO is going to have a, a second or a third event? And how do you do that? We create kind of a sandwich. There are two different kinds of devices, but they both work fundamentally the same way. There's a disc that is placed on the left atrial side, a disc that opens on the right atrial side, and they close with that flap of tissue in the middle and they hold it closed. The body grows over the, both of the discs on either side. It stays with you. It's permanently part of the heart. And this is done in the cath lab. 
It's a procedure with a very high success rate, a very low complication rate. Uh, patients stay overnight, tend to go home the next day, and then we monitor afterwards. So you don't have to open up the heart to, to fix the defect? No, this is done with catheters in the cath lab. Uh, patients are kind of sleepy, but not all the way asleep. They have to breathe on their own. Un- incredible. You do it through a catheter that you snake up through the groin, and you can close that defect. The real challenge with PFO is identifying the right patient because it's so common I think you have to do a diligent evaluation and a collaborative evaluation with neurology to figure out which are the patients that are most likely to benefit from PFO closure. 25% of people might have this. The things that you described that can cause problems are, are pretty routine or mundane things. That seems kind of alarming. Is this something that people could or should go get tested? Should I know if I have a PFO in case something like that happens to me? I would say no. I think we don't <laughs> screen for something that's so common. Now, I do think that, that people, especially younger folks, if they've had a stroke, they should, you should look to see whether they have a PFO. But you should also look to make sure that it isn't due to anything else. Now, a word about aging. It's interesting because you had this PFO your whole life. You've had it since before you were born. But we know that closure of PFOs is less likely to be helpful in preventing recurrent events as you get older because every other cause for stroke gets more common. So atrial fibrillation is more common atherosclerosis in the aorta, in the carotids, in the cerebral vasculature, they get more common. Hypertension as a cause for stroke gets more common. So all of those other causes of stroke get more common as you get older. And so the benefit is really limited to folks who are younger than 60 or younger than 55 years of age. All right. Well, we've learned a lot about PFO, and 25% of us have it. But hopefully only a small number of us will ever have a stroke because of it. I agree. I agree. We've been talking about heart defects and valve disease with Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Peter Pollack. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Pollack. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Good to have you. Thanks, Dr. Pollack. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about hip arthroscopy, repairing hip problems through a small telescope. And later on in the program, we'll get some advice on avoiding infections at the nail salon. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Millions of people deal with age-related macular degeneration as they get older, but many don't understand the difference between types of the condition or what they can do to lessen the effects. Dr. Sophie Bakri, a Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist and retina specialist, explains the differences between wet macular degeneration and dry macular degeneration. So maybe you've noticed you're not seeing as well. You try out readers, but everything just seems blurry, and straight lines seem wavy. It could be age-related macular degeneration. So Dr. Bakri says the macula is the center of the retina, and the retina is the camera of the eye that receives the light impulses and processes them. And the macula is responsible for the really fine visual acuity, precision vision. Dr. Bakri says there are two kinds of macular degeneration, wet and dry. The dry kind usually comes on first. And if you look in the retina of the dry kind, you see little rock-like deposits under the retina. Sometimes there are areas of atrophy where the cells are not present or not really working well. For dry macular degeneration, there are over-the-counter vitamins that can help. But mostly, Dr. Bakri says, a Mediterranean diet and exercise are the best things you can do for symptoms. The wet type is usually in the later stages, when a blood vessel has grown under the retina and is leaking blood or fluid. And the number one goal is to shut down that blood vessel to prevent it from bleeding more and to prevent patients from losing more vision. 
Dr. Bakri says that for wet macular degeneration, you'll likely need to see a retina specialist for a treatment plan that includes regular eye injections. And in other news, sugar. Do you know how much is in your diet? If you're like many people, you're probably eating and drinking more sugar than you realize because it's added to so many foods and beverages. Added sugars add calories without adding nutrients. Eating too many foods with added sugars sets the stage for potential health problems such as poor nutrition, weight gain, increased triglycerides, and tooth decay. The Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommend that added sugars make up no more than 10% of your daily calories. For a 2,000-calorie diet, that's about 12 teaspoons. The American Heart Association advises a stricter limit for added sugars. No added sugar for children younger than age 2, and no more than about 6 teaspoons of sugar for children older than age 2 and women, and 9 teaspoons of sugar for men. Unfortunately, U.S. adults get an average of 13% more of their total daily calories from added sugars, which exceeds the recommendations. By limiting the amount of added sugars in your diet, you can cut calories without compromising nutrition. In fact, cutting back on foods with added sugars may make it easier to get the nutrients you need without exceeding your calorie goal. Take this easy first step. Next time you're tempted to reach for a soda or other sugary drink, grab a glass of ice-cold water instead. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Ian Roth. Arthroscopy is a procedure for diagnosing and treating joint problems. A surgeon inserts a narrow tube attached to a fiber optic video camera through a small incision about the size of a buttonhole. The view inside your joint is transmitted to a high-definition video monitor, like a high-resolution TV screen. Arthroscopy allows the surgeon to see inside your joint without making a big incision. Surgeons can even repair some types of joint damage using the arthroscope. And they use pencil-thin surgical instruments, which are inserted through additional small incisions. Pretty cool procedure. Now, you may all know someone who's had arthroscopic knee surgery, and now the same techniques are being used to repair some problems of the hip. Here to discuss hip arthroscopy is Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Bruce Levy. Welcome to the program, Dr. Levy. Thanks very much for having me. Dr. Levy, nice to have you. So you've sort of put away the knife and just using the tube and your small instruments. So uh, through these minimally invasive techniques, Tom, we really have made some huge advances in the treatment of both labral tears and femoral acetabular impingement. So the hip joint is basically a ball and socket. So you get a ball that sits in the socket, and then there's a little ring or suction cup called your labrum that helps hold the bone. Okay, and that and can cause a problem. It can. In fact, uh, when people tear their labrum, uh, it can be very painful for them and often pretty difficult to diagnose. So these patients uh, end up seeing multiple providers, and eventually somebody figures out that problem's inside the hip joint, and normally an MRI is obtained, which shows a label tear, and then they get referred for, for treatment options. And how, do you, how does that normally happen? How does it get torn? So you can tear the labrum traumatically if you have a fall from a height or you land directly on the side of the hip. But most often, uh, Tom, they actually tear because people have these bony bumps that grow around the hip joint. And when they sit, these bony bumps rub up against the suction cup and tear it. And so the thigh bone is called the femur. The socket is called the acetabulum. And when the two hit, we call it femoral acetabular impingement. And so these patients often present with sitting pain when the bones are hitting each other. 
The suction cup unfortunately gets caught in between the two bones and eventually tears. So now we have the ability to do this all arthroscopically through two or three little holes, outpatient operation. And we can go in one hole with the camera and the other hole, the portal we call it, with our instruments. We can remove all the bony bumps that are causing the problem on both the socket side and the ball side. And we can reattach the labrum or the suction cup with sutures and anchors. And it has been an incredible practice-changing experience for me personally. And I could tell you, as a knee-only surgeon for many, many years, I was initially reluctant to, to try this in the hip. And the patients started coming back with just fantastic results. And years later now, I've been doing it for 12 years, almost 2,000 hip scopes. They are by far my happiest patients. So in some ways, you're using this as a diagnostic tool. How is it showing things that you wouldn't necessarily see in imaging ahead of time? That's a great question. So imaging is actually quite good. We've come a long way with with MRI and CT scans and x-rays. And when we put all of it together, we have a pretty good idea what we're going to find when we get in the hip. So I wouldn't say it's used that much as a diagnostic tool, but more as a treatment now. And so we have a pretty good idea of, of what our plan is going in, and uh, and then we we execute. And how old are these patients oh. on average? So another another tough one, but um, we operate on patients uh, as early as their early teens, all the way up into their seven late seventies, even eighties. It all has to do with with what the problem is. So for example, if you've got somebody who has advanced bone on bone arthritis. Regardless of their age, they probably need a hip replacement. Whereas if you have patients of all ages that don't have much arthritis and have a label tear and the extra bumps we talked about, you're a candidate for hip arthroscopy. And so it's patients of all ages. Now, why do people get these extra bumps that you talked about, this femoral acetabular impingement? Yeah, Is so it something we, you're born with or it develops over time? or You know, we don't. A hundred percent know the answer. What we do suspect is when someone's younger, maybe they're 12, 13, 14 years old, they have a little slip of the growth plate at the mm-hmm. ball part, at the, at the proximal femur. Where the bone grows from. Where the bone grows from on the end of the ball. Mm-hmm. And so like any injury, new bone forms as a reaction to that and they end up with these bony bumps and they grow over time. The other sort of common scenario is somebody just has some mild arthritis and the body's reaction to arthritis is try to grow bone. That's where bone spurs and what they call Hmm. osteophytes come from. Okay. And so you can get them on both the socket or on the ball. Now, when you repair this labrum, which is pretty much an extension of the, of the socket, and it's kind of, uh, is it cartilage? Yes. And and does it grow? Does it heal once you uh, sew it back together? It heals very well. As opposed to a meniscus. Does a meniscus in the knee heal? Yeah, the meniscus in the knee can heal too. The, the, the meniscus is a little bit different. The blood supply in the meniscus can only go so far into the meniscal tissue. So healing rates in the meniscus are very dependent on where that blood supply goes to and where the tear pattern is. So there's a lot of different types of tear patterns in the meniscus that are amenable to healing and some that aren't. So you said this is an outpatient surgical procedure? Yes. And so general anesthetic? General anesthetic. And what, and what about recovery? So it's, uh, it's, it's quite amazing. We 
were so worried about pain with this operation uh, that we were actually doing nerve blocks around the hip and treating people with extensive uh, narcotics initially. And then people started coming back saying, you know, I only needed pain pills for a day or two. And we were like, that seems odd because it's so much more extensive. We have to cut through so much more tissue to get down into the hip joint than we do for a knee, for example. But we've learned with hip and knee replacement that the hip actually hurts probably a little less than the knees. We don't exactly know why. So we did pain diaries on all of our hip scopes. We're going back years now. And we were shocked to find that almost all patients were off narcotic pain pills within two to three days. Uh, the ones that stayed on them a little longer were the ones that were on them before and had a little trouble getting off. And so we've stopped doing the blocks. We limit, obviously, the amount of narcotics we give people because they're not needed. And surprisingly, it's an incredibly well-tolerated procedure. So you have a tiny little instrument with a needle and a suture on it that you can actually get inside there and, and repair the the uh, labrum. Right. So the the portal size is usually less than a centimeter. And all of so the that's instruments. Half an inch or so. It's yeah. half an inch or so. And we have uh, specialized tools that we've developed over time. Uh, long arthroscopes, much longer than what you would need in a knee, and long equipment. So we can reach down. And we've done patients, you know, that are 65 pounds and patients that are over 400 pounds. And, uh, the ability to operate on these patients through these small incisions, if you can imagine trying to do you know, we had a 25-year-old offensive lineman uh, with a monstrous muscular thigh. I mean, the incision to get down to that joint uh, would, would be very extensive. And here we have two little holes and can do all the work. Incredible, exciting stuff. That it is. We've been talking hip arthroscopy with Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Bruce Levy. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Levy. It's our, it's my Levy. pleasure. Are you taking good care of your fingernails and your toenails? Well, boy, we don't overlook anything on Mayo Clinic Radio, do we? Never. A lot of people rely on a manicure or a pedicure to make their fingernails and toenails look nice, and not just women. If you get your fingers and toes done together, I've heard women say they're going for a mani-pedi. I hear it all the time from my <laughs> wife. But before that trip to the nail salon, it's important that you use some caution. Take a few steps to lower your risk of infection. Here to discuss nail health is Mayo Clinic dermatologist Dr. Rachel Meast. Welcome to the program, Dr. Meese. Thank you. Dr. Meese, good to have you. So I heard Ian say infection. You mm-hmm. have to worry about an infection if you're going to mm-hmm. get your fingers or your toes done? Yes, absolutely. It's really important. So, for instance, important to know that the facility that you're going to is very clean. Um, that starts with making sure that they're a licensed technician. I think it's never a bad idea to ask some of these questions. Certainly you can ask, what is your protocol? What do you clean with? Does some, is there someone, a safety inspector mm-hmm. or whoever it may be that comes in? So absolutely you can ask those questions. Once you get there, it's never a bad idea to look around and see, is, is this a safe environment? Do you see them cleaning the surfaces? If there are tubs, particularly jetted tubs, do you see them putting solutions, whether it be soapy water or um, cleaning solutions into those tubs for 10 minutes and running them and letting them really clean and sort of looking at their practices. Where are they getting their tools? Are the tools clean? Have they been soaking? And then what can you do uh, 
the biggest thing, particularly with pedicures, is really not to shave the legs at least 24 hours before that appointment. Mm. And that's super important because even if the surfaces are clean, there are still these, you know, bacteria and fungi all around us in the water. Um, and so if you shave, you can cause little micro cuts in the skin, even if it's not a big nick that you know about, there are still micro cuts there that can be a way for the bacteria or fungus in particular to get into the skin. So super important 24 hours beforehand, not to shave. Hmm. And then, um, Another thing that you can do once things have gotten started is really the cuticles should not be cut or aggressively pushed back. All right. Now, i got to ask you about cuticles because I <laughs> yes. remember my mom's. She would always say, well, you know, push your cuticles back. So yes. I honestly, and I went to medical school, yep. but I thought the cuticle was that skin at the very back of your fingernail. But yes. it's not the skin, is it? It is. It is, a, it is a thin layer of skin, but it's a protective layer that really sort of grows out from the base of the nail and protects things from getting under that nail. It is really mostly or almost purely cosmetic that we want to push that back or clip it. Pushing it back gently after the hands have been soaked is reasonable, but you really got to be careful because when that barrier has been broken, that's when you can have infection set in. So even if the tools are clean, the surfaces are clean, if the cuticle is clipped away or aggressively pushed back, you're basically putting yourself at risk for an infection. What advice do you have for us about taking care of our fingernails at home without going to the salon? Yes. So I think sort of tying the two together, painting the nails or having having the polish applied during a manicure pedicure is not necessarily bad. There are certain individuals who could be allergic to some components of nail polish, so that's important to know if you have sensitivity to that. I think it is important to give your nails a break from having nail polish occasionally. Now, that's important for a number of reasons. Um, one, it's important to see the nails. Nails can be a huge reflection of your overall health, and so it's important not to mask any potential underlying issues, and that could be anything from a nail fungus, so something superficial, or it could be more of a systemic issue. Having these services done is not inherently dangerous, but I think doing it intermittently and giving your nails a break every once in a while is helpful because over time, those different things that they might do, whether it be buffing the nails or um, filing the nail surface or just the actual polish on the nail can lead to thinning of the nail plate. And again, that's a super protective thing that your body has done. And so it's important to keep that intact. And so, um, you know, minimizing that, minimizing things like wet work, that's something that, again, in the spirit of keeping those nails hard, um, over time, wet work can can soften the nails, it can put you at risk for uh, fungal infections, etc. So something to keep in mind, if you're doing a lot of food prep, or you do a lot of um, dishes, things like that, then it's important to be wearing protective gloves. Um, and then really just um, keeping them trimmed, you know, not pulling. Um, if you have hangnails, that's okay to clip because anything that you pull around that area, again, can go a little bit deeper than expected and leave you with that susceptibility to infection. And then really, I think it's always helpful, particularly up north here where we have such long, dry winters, it's really important to keep the hands and the nails and the skin surrounding the nails moisturized. And that's just as simple as 
using a hand lotion throughout the day. And what's the best way to cut your fingernails? The best way is to cut them straight across. The main important thing with that is you want to be careful not to cut the corners so rounded because that's particularly in the toenails where you put yourself at risk for ingrown nails. So a soft, rounded corner is totally fine, but you do need to be careful because if that's too sharp of a curve there, then that's really when you get yourself into trouble. A lot of people are interested in having harder fingernails. Mm -hmm. The uh, nutritional supplement Biotin, I've heard, uh, can potentially harden your nails. Does it work? Biotin does work for the nails. The data does show that it does lead to stronger nails. The one common question that we get is related in the sense that they are often, biotin is often the main ingredient in hair and nail supplements. The data is is not as strong for hair, and so really, though, for the nails, it does show that it can strengthen the nails, but you do need to be careful with biotin because there is some recent data to show that it can affect certain laboratory tests, so it's really important that your patients are aware of that if they are taking it. So it, it probably works, but you want to tell your physician that you're taking it exactly. before you have any blood Important. tests. Exactly. All right, one final question. We need Mm -hmm. an update on toenail fungus because a lot of people have it. I know it's extremely difficult to get rid of. Do you have some better treatments than we used to have? I wish that I did. (laughs) I really do. This is a super common question because nail fungus is so, so common, particularly toenail fungus. And so, no, unfortunately, it it remains a very, very stubborn disease. Uh, We see a lot of it. It's it's more common as we as we age. And unfortunately, the treatments that we have don't work super well. So unfortunately, if it's not super bothersome, we we sort of weigh the options of any treatment at all. And it's something that they are always coming out with new things. Unfortunately, even some of the newer things don't work all that much better than the old standbys that we have. So unfortunately, I don't have any good news on that front. All right. So if you've got toenail fungus, you might want to keep it for now. Probably. All right. Everything you'd like, you wanted to know about manicures and pedicures, mani-pedis with dermatologist Dr. Rachel Meast of the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being of with course, us, Dr. Thank Meast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Yes. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.